Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, we are celebrating 10 years of putting this podcast out into the world. On October 6th of 2009, the episode started sounding like this. Let me tell you something bad, let me tell you something weird, let me tell you something real. Let me tell you how I roll, let me tell you how I think, let me tell you how I feel. Let me tell you all the things I gotta tell you, cause the things I haven't told you are the things I gotta tell you. Risk! Yes! That's the word. This is Risk, the boldest hour of sound around. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Risk. That first episode took all of the the summer of 2009 to produce. It really was crazy for an independent outlet to be creating such a difficult podcast to produce. And you know what? We now have 461 episodes. 1,408 stories have been featured on those episodes. I remember when the show was brand new and, you know, the budget was zero. I was just maxing out credit cards just to keep it up. I had this fantasy Maybe one day we'll have enough episodes so that a person could listen to one episode of Risk every day for a whole month. (laughs) That was the big fantasy. And now here we are. I've spent the past mm, couple of weeks listening back to the first three years of Risk. I I really have such nostalgia for those first three years because those were the years where we were doing so much experimentation. I mean, some of the stories were two minutes long. Some of the stories are songs. And there's dozens of original songs that fans of Risk wrote to vie for being the Risk theme song. It wasn't until the eighth episode of our third year that we finally settled on the Wormburner and John Sonderricker theme song that you hear at the beginning of every Risk episode. Now, instead, back in the day, each episode started with a completely different song, like that first one was by Matt Park, and this is another favorite of ours by Morning Bell. I got all music, Camp Chaka, the training in the rain. I'm all up in the Congo and I'm taking the Ukraine. It's risk. It's risk. There were so many things that were different back then. I used to end every episode 
I would Google the idea of risk and look for expressions, sayings from other countries that were poorly translated or just lost in translation. So I'd end the shows like this. And remember what the French say about risk. There is more than one donkey at the fair called Martin. And remember what the Austrians say about risk. Would you slide down the hump of a hunchback using your tongue as a brake? I don't think, I don't think I would. Well, I guess it kind of depends on the hunchback. And remember what the Brazilians say about risk. Anyone who has an anus also has concerns. Trust me, folks, those Brazilians do have anuses. Do they ever? And remember what the Nigerians say about risk. He who carries the carcass of an elephant does not search for crickets with his legs. <laughs> but as ridiculous and outrageous and often inappropriate, those marijuana-influenced hosting segments of the show used to be. Uh, what about, like, just all of the incredible stories that you just were not hearing <laughs> on other podcasts? The, the level of jaw-dropping outrageousness on the show was just relentless. Let's take a look back at some of that. He said, tie the shoes to your balls. He's very frustrated, like he's thinking, you know, how'd this guy get this far in life without learning how to tie shoes to his balls? I can see his defenseless balls just hanging there, but I try to ignore it and just focus on his bare ass. So I went to poot. <laughs> and instead of just pooting, I released a floodgate of diarrhea into my shorts. I'm talking about quarts of diarrhea. I'm not sure if anyone who's listening to this has ever Googled dog anus. In retrospect, I've Googled it several times, and I've learned a thing or two about dog anuses as compared to human anuses. Then, I take his pinus, <laughs> and I rub my face in it! My heart stopped, and I go, were you just eating pussy? And he goes, like, the way he thought about it, it was like a magician that guessed his card. He was like, yes! And so the last thing I see as she shuts the door behind me is her puffy cheeked with my semen in her mouth. So then I went downstairs and I saw Anchorman. On Sunday, I was reading the Bible to the children. And now I'm on the drugs. <laughs> That's how it happens. I was just in sheer panic that if my grandmother or grandfather hugged me the wrong or right way that I would truly just climax on them by accident. And all this hot, dead goat piss flies into his open mouth. And I was just like, yes! I don't know if you've been shot in the face before, but it's terribly not fun. And she says, if you ever lie to me again, I will punch a hole in your face. <laughs> I know. 
And then I smacked him across the face. And I was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And I smacked him across the face. And he was like, did you fuck her? And he was like, no. And I smacked him across the face. He said, did you fuck her? And he said, yes. And I was like, it worked. And she runs up to me. And I'm like, hey. And she's like, how are you doing? And I don't know what happened, but I exploded in tears. And it was so beautiful because she looks at me and she goes, not so good, huh? But luckily, he quickly changes the subject of my impending sword doom by spitting blood all over my face. Oh, are you the guys not into that? Me neither! You know, I go, sucking dick, sucking dick, sucking dick. What? Sucking dick, 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 sucking dick. I suck so much dick, it's ridiculous. I've gotten so much dick, I'm fucking sick of this. Dick, sucking dick, sucking dick, sucking dick. And I'm naked, I'm holding a camera. And there's like 900 starving gay men staring at me and cheering. There's about 50 guys running around us in a circle like crazy Indians with war paint on their faces, completely naked. I open up the milkshake, I dip my balls in this milkshake, and pain courses through my body like I had been shot with a freeze gun. This is not what you're supposed to do. I accidentally drunk dialed Katie's house. And now I'm jerking off talking to her 15-year-old boy. So now I'm humping garbage, you guys. Oh my God, I had been watching my parents having sex and masturbating to them. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realize I'm unconscious. Another thing we did a lot of back in the day were comedy sketches that, you know, when you would listen to an episode of Risk in the first two years, especially, you just never knew what was going to be happening in your ears next. For example, on our 23rd episode, Glennis McCarthy shared a story about how when she was in junior high, she was a virgin, but she had this really cruel stepmother who was constantly asking her inappropriate questions about her sex life, which didn't exist. (laughs) So I asked Joe Schappa and Nathan Phillips, who were two improvisers at the pit where I was working at the time, to come on in and just improvise a sketch about Cinderella and her stepmom, and it sounded like this. See me, stepmother? Well, if it isn't Cinderella, freshly back from the sex jungle. Uh, excuse me? I was just in the kitchen cleaning. Oh, I just assumed you were over at your boyfriend's house in some sort of sex jungle. Um, I don't really have a boyfriend. Well, I have a C, why don't you? Try not to leave a mark. A mark on the seat? Why is there a marker on my pants or something? Do I, well, I don't know if it's marker. I don't know if marker comes in clear and smelly. Oh, um, okay. Maybe I should just get back to the kitchen and start, um, sweeping up? Well, I just came home early so we could get to know each other. Spend a little girl-on-girl time. That's so nice. A little ATM, a little ass-to-mouth. That's what you're into, um, isn't it? What? All the boys like it, don't they? Um, I've never really received a compliment from a boy. What have you received other than a big, fat cock up your anus? I'm not quite sure what that even 
entails. You like fat guys, don't you? Kind of. You like to spread them out and lick their asses. Okay, I, like, I just like fat guys. I don't like to do any of the other stuff. Do you like uh, the way they smell when they get all sweaty and you fuck them with a big fat black dildo? Let me put it to you this way. Uh-huh. At midnight, when I turn into a pumpkin, mm-hmm. if I were you, I'd turn into an ass and I'd be getting a big fat cock shoved up me. Is that Was that a good metaphor? Um, On your Facebook profile, under likes and dislikes for food, does it say cock or pizza? Well, it's it says pizza. cock. It says pizza. It says cock. It says pizza. It says cock. Well, you can clearly cock. tell me the truth. Well, when never, you're grabbing a big flat, flat I've never seen cake. a man's penis. I've never seen a man's penis. Oh, that's because you always take it from behind. Well, no, I... I just picture you, I want to do it like a boy. I want to do it like a boy. I don't even know what that means. Well, you want to take it up the butt like a little sailor, man. You know, frogs can do that. Oh, they can? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a frog right now. A bit. Shove it up your ass. A lot of people, especially people making comments on iTunes in the early days, really didn't know what to make of how unpredictable, how off the beaten path risk episodes could be at times. What you just heard was a comedy improvisation. Well, the whole series of Risk has always embraced part of the famous philosophy of comedy improv, and that is that it's okay to be imperfect here. You don't have to walk on eggshells here. In the early days of the show, there were, of course, other storytelling shows, and I was studying them closely specifically to watch the self-censorship going on amongst the storytellers on those shows. People on those shows were so often so concerned about making sure that what they were saying was universally palatable to as many people as possible, people of all ages, not too challenging or too colorful for anyone, that they weren't letting the messier sides of themselves show. So as the host of the show, I always felt like it was my role to, if I'm sitting down, a microphone is in front of me, and I feel especially silly and goofy that day, to let that show. If I felt really emotional that day, uh, you know, spiritual, philosophical, to let that show. To let the eccentricities and idiosyncrasies of my weird, complicated personality totally breathe out loud in my hosting of the show. Now, one thing that me and everyone who's done this show have been learning over all these years is that if you do find it in yourself to stand up and express yourself, you know, say something really meaningful, say something really revealing, say something that's just got a load of personality in it, you will have haters. You will have people attacking and insulting and belittling you online. And the morning that I sat down in my little recording booth in Bushwick to record the 26th episode of our second year, that episode was called Try, and I had been devastated by a lot of mean things that people were saying about how much they hated my voice, my personality, et cetera, et cetera, online. And I decided to let the audience know how I was feeling about that. And how that was connected to the origin story of the show itself in my psychological evolution, the point I was making in creating the show in the first place. 
is not to let the hate of the haters silence you. So here is that opening monologue from the episode called Try. You know, it's kind of been weighing on me. How can I push myself? How can I go new places with my hosting and my storytelling? Uh, Because, you know, we're coming on two years of this show now. And pushing ourselves has always been the idea. Here's, Here's a confession. I have always been super, super insecure about those two things. My hosting and my storytelling. Now, that, that shouldn't be too huge a surprise. Everyone on this show is nervous, right? Performers are nervous. But let me give you a little bit of a background. When I was growing up, my mom used to say things to me like, um, Kevin, stop having so much facial expression. Kevin, stop enunciating your words so much. Um, Kevin, use smaller movements when you gesture. And so, well, (laughs) so I became a comedian because, you know, I started to feel like, okay, I'm a freak. Where is a social setting where I can, um, where I can pass, right? But when I got in the state, I found that all of that insecurity was still so much there only in this new social setting. I never dropped the self-consciousness. I was terrified all throughout being in the state. And when the group broke up, I just thought, oh, God, I can't start getting on stage as just myself now. No one will ever get me. I'm too corny. I'm too bizarre, too Midwestern, too gay, too vulgar, too too nice even. So for 13 years, I did not get up on stage as myself. For four years, I left show business altogether. And I went nowhere. I went absolutely nowhere. I was one of those people who might as well have fallen off the face of the earth. And then in 2008, I did a show of character monologues. See, when I was getting up on stage at all, I was doing cartoonish characters. I was kind of hiding behind them. But in 2008, I was tired of uh, just the pure silliness, and I wanted to start telling my stories. So I, I had these crazy characters telling my stories. The show was called F Up. They were all failures. They were characters who had fucked up their whole lives, and they were having a hard time just being themselves and making it work. Uh, there was like a British actor who was too drunk to perform because he had stage fright. There was like a Yiddish comedian who was too jealous of his fellow comedians, his scene partners, and was always shooting himself in the foot. But these characters were still lovable because they were still trying. You know, they were like Laurel and Hardy. I saw Laurel and Hardy kind of as like my patron saints at that time. But that show itself turned out to be a bit of a failure, a bit of a fuck-up. The the ultimate performance of it, I went out to San Francisco to their sketch fest there. It was a huge 300-seat theater with very high ceilings. I think maybe 12 people showed up, around about that. And uh, I was screaming throughout the whole show because there was no mic. It was just 
horrifying. It was one of my most horrifying moments on stage. And I just felt like I couldn't connect with anyone at all. Like I wasn't getting through. There was no, no reciprocal energy happening between me and the audience. And I walked away from the show and uh, Michael Ian Black from the state had been there. And we're walking away from the show and he could tell how depressed I was. And I said, what'd you think? And he said, Kevin, I think everyone in that room wanted the same thing. You and all of us in the audience. We all wanted you to just drop the act and start speaking as yourself, even if you weren't ready to. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, I know. I hear that. I feel like I've been hearing that my whole life. But uh, that's so risky. I'm so scared of that. And he said, yeah, well, that risky stuff is where anything of any worth comes from. And that conversation right then and there was the germinating seed from which this show came. You know, I woke up yesterday and I was going to record this hosting segment and I opened my iTunes and checked the comments. A lot of people say, Kevin, you check what people say about you on iTunes? That's pathetic. I don't know how I couldn't. About once a month, someone will write, I love risk. I hate Kevin Allison. <laughs> They'll say, this show is perfect. If only the host would go away. I make them cringe. I'm too vulgar, too big, too this, too that, too the other. And what usually happens is that a day or two of, of massive depression sets in when I read comments like that. And I start to argue with myself. I say, yeah, yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I should just be a facilitator, letting other people tell their stories. Stop with my own stuff. But I can't let it mean that anymore. Because Risk turned my life around not because of any attention or compliments that I ever got for my own stories or hosting, but because in telling my own stories and being a host like this, I've gotten so many people to join in. I said, let's do a show where it's not all about being polished and perfect and memorized and workshop. Let's do a show where you're just trying stuff out, like when you share something with your friends and so many people dove in with their hearts and souls. I'm talking about you, the listeners. I'm talking about all the performers. Being yourself is an infinite effort. You know, we have an infinite ability to continue becoming more and more ourselves. And if you're trying to be more yourself, you are at least going somewhere. If you're avoiding it, you're just standing still. That's what I've learned from this show and the 13 years of going nowhere that preceded this show. So when I read those comments on iTunes, I know, look, I'm just not that guy's cup of tea, most likely. But if I keep trying to be myself, maybe one day he'll get me. Doesn't matter. Because I'm going places. Let's you and me keep going places together. Oh. 
my baby, she's a risk taker, undercover deal maker, salt and pepper shaker, make a good man fall. Stays out all night, tell me that it's alright. Big hips, loose lips, and that ain't all. Shit, my big risk mama. Do what she wanna. Oh, big risk mama, come take a chance on me. She a big risk mama. I know I shouldn't, but I wanna. Oh, big risk mama, come take a chance on me. That was Roosevelt Dime that did that Risk theme called Big Risk Mama. And this is Steven Bernstein. We have featured so much of his music on the show over the years. By the way, if you like all the instrumentals that we play on the show, we are compiling a great big playlist on Spotify called Risk instrumentals created by Kevin Allison. You can also find the best of risk music there on Spotify. That's an epic list of all the songs with lyrics that we've featured on the show. And always remember that the tables of contents for every episode of risk are on our website on the listen pages with links to show you where you can find the storytellers and the musicians online. Now, even though we're 10 years old, we're very aware that we're still evolving. You know, a huge part of the evolution of the show has everything to do with what people have come forward to reveal on the show. For example, in the 10th episode of our second year, Blaine Neese shared a story about grieving the loss of his sister. And oh my gosh, the emotion in his voice in that story. It really opened up space for people to talk about grief on the show. Nancy Sullivan was on the third episode of our third year. She shared about her childhood trauma around sexual abuse. And man, oh man, yeah, that like blew the lid open. So we know there are so many more stories to be told. And you know that you can find us at risk-show.com slash submissions. But let's look back now at some of those most memorable moments of people daring to share on Risk. And the woman that was sitting behind the driver's seat... Her head was resting on that woman's shoulder and her eyes were open. And I felt as though she was looking at me and saying, what have you done to us? And that has haunted me almost every single day since that day. And I was going back and back and I was thinking to myself, I don't fucking want this. All I wanted to do was play with pigeons. I don't want to be fucked. I don't want to be killed. I don't want to die. All I wanted was friends. I just want friends. I just wanted to play with birds. I don't want this shit. And they were coming toward me. And as I went further and further back into the water, the current took me. And immediately when they saw that, everybody took off and started running. We sat down on the couch, and in front of us, we saw 
every knife from the kitchen, from the small knives to the, to the biggest, sharpest knife that we had and everything in between. There were about 25 knives on the table. And Dad said, listen, I, I can see you've seen these knives, and here's what I want to talk to you about. Duffy, this, this is for you. There's, a, there's been a problem. I think we can all sense it. There's, there's just there's too many men in the house. There's not enough room for the both of us. One of us has to go. It's not going to be me. I can tell you that much. So I would like to challenge you to a duel. I would like you to take any knife you want. We'll go down to the basement, have it out like two, two, two gentlemen, and one of us will come up. He was like, oh, man, I don't know what to do. I got to figure out where I'm going to ditch y'all. And in my mind, I'm like, ditch us. Is that like in a ditch somewhere or is that like let us go? But I didn't want to find out. And my brain was like, my dad cannot find me raped and murdered in a ditch somewhere. I got to get the hell out of this car. Claire's mother knew about the break-in, but had only learned about it a few days before. She'd actually texted me earlier that week to check in because she hadn't heard from Claire in a while. And in my response, I alluded to some of the things that had been going on. It was only after this that Claire had actually mentioned anything to her. The doctors had been in contact with Claire's mother that day, so she was very aware that there was something really strange going on. But crucially, she had absolutely no knowledge of the cancer diagnosis, the poisoning, or any of the treatment and surgeries. And this was unbelievably confusing, because I'd received text messages sent from her phone that mentioned many of those things. He said, I'm going to give you one more chance to answer my question and tell me who you saw burn down that barn. Otherwise, I'm going to pull you open slow from your guts to your neck. And I wish I could have said that I fought back or that I had some um, sudden burst of strength. You know, everyone wants to be the resilient person who fights back. But um, in actuality, what I prayed was that he would do it the other way, that he would start from my neck and pull down so that I would die more quickly. I just wanted it to be over. Maybe I haven't seen the last of Jeremy. Every once in a while, I see a kid with that black mop and those beady little eyes and the expression way too stoic for his age. And I swear it could be him. I have no doubt what I ate that day wasn't, it wasn't ham. I know what ham tastes like. I believe that my dad fed me human flesh, which makes him a cannibal. It makes me a cannibal. Intentionally, unintentionally, it's what happened. My dad, he always wanted to go in his own direction, but sometimes the direction he went in was the wrong one. She reached out and held her brother's hand and she looked at me and she said, am I not pretty enough? And I was confused. I didn't understand. Why? Why? What do you mean, honey? You're beautiful. Well, am I not pretty enough? You don't want to take us? I'll give you any sex you want. I'll fuck you however you want to be fucked. From a fucking nine-year-old. 
You can't process that. And I told her, I said, honey, that's not how things are. I said, I don't have any kids yet. So I'm not really good with these kind of topics, honey, but I, I want you to know that that's not how life needs to be. We're going to get you home to your mama. We're going to just put all this behind you. And he said, all right, I'm going to tell you everything. Richard started telling me about my father. Richard was about 15 at this time. He said, I've always been attracted to men. And so is your father. She's like, tell me the truth right now. You can't lie about something like this. This is a horrible thing that you're talking about. You have to tell me the truth right now. What's going on? And I'm like, that is the truth. I don't want to be in a dress in a wedding with this awful person that did this awful thing to me. How could you just not believe me? And so I reached out to her and I said, I was that guy. I was controlling. I was manipulative. I was abusive and I screamed and did horrible, horrible things. But I also was able to find my way out to the other side. And even then, it wasn't until hearing her story that I missed a crucial piece of healing that I didn't even know that I needed. But people, they, they call women stupid and they call these men monsters. Well, that doesn't serve anybody. They're not monsters. They are our brothers, our husbands, our boyfriends, our bosses at work, our coworkers, our teachers, cops. They are men all over our community and they're not monsters. They're sick people who belong in jail, but they're human beings that people fall in love with. So not only is it demeaning to them and dehumanizing to them, but it's also super patronizing to do that because it, it makes the women who date them feel like morons for having dated them. It was scary. It was genuinely scary. And I finally got the courage to open the door and I went in presenting as the other gender and Dennis was in there and he's behind the counter. And I was like, Dennis, I want a dozen sandworms. And he turns around, goes over to the cooler, gets a cup and starts counting the sandworms out and putting them in the cup. And I'm talking the whole time. I'm like, Dennis, this is what's going on with me. I've known my whole life, blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling him and telling him, and he finally gets up to 12, and he turns to me and he goes, do you have the money for the fucking sandworms? And I was like, yeah, Dennis, I have the money for the sandworms. I wanted to tell you about it. He goes, yeah, fine. Give me the money for the sandworms. Go fish. And uh, who would have thought? You know, I find affirmation in the strangest places. You know, if you had told me the man from the bait and tackle shop is going to be so on your side, I would have said, bullshit, no way. And he was, he is my friend. No, no trial. I want to enjoy all of these things. And so we do some radiation to the places that are the scariest, a spot in my pancreas, a spot on my thyroid, and a spot on my hip. And then, no more treatment. Does that scare you? 
I will not waste my time in doctor's offices pursuing things that may or may not actually do me any good. I will not make myself more miserable and I will not make my body feel like it is at war with itself, trying to be better. In that moment, I didn't judge him anymore. And it was like the room was filled with something magical. And I don't know if you want to think of it like God, the divine, like love, beauty, kindness, acceptance. But whatever it was, it was there and it was so palpable and it was transforming me like right before my eyes. And I was able to feel love for this guy. And I'm experiencing this and at the same time I'm watching myself experience it and it's like blowing my mind. And the dog just came up to us and she was the sweetest dog and she didn't bark, she didn't do anything, she just was present and she was her calm self. And the dog just came and inserted herself in between me and my mom and I looked at the dog and I knew since I didn't want to hurt the dog, I knew that something was wrong. I'm not a violent person. If I don't want to hurt this dog, why am I trying to kill this person, even if it's a demon as a person? And my mom's family friend, her, her long-term boyfriend from my childhood, was staying over that night because my mom was worried about me. And he came up the stairs and took the knife from me and was like, what are you doing? I'm going to not beat myself up, and I keep reminding myself that he was really special. Everyone's lost little dog, even though you can't intellectualize it. They're all really special. They're cats, and they're birds, and they're fish. I will never replace Charlie, but I love him, and um, he really did make me feel like the boy from the story. was a risk theme song by dan rosen there there was a band called animal collective that was so big when we first started the show and so that was a little parody he calls that animal risk and this is ellen clegg behind me now let me tell you that montage of story clips that could have gone on five or six times longer there are so many people you know, sarah long hendershot Adam Strawn, Martin Moran, Jill Chenault, Chris Ryan, Jan Scott Frazier, Poyo Corral, Christine Gentry, Britt Adams, Amy Salloway. There have been so many extraordinary moments of sharing on this show. It's just overwhelming. And let's not forget all the celebrities who have done the show. We've heard clips from some of them. 
but not Nikki Glaser, Aisha Tyler, Jonah Ray, Dan Savage, Trevor Noah, Ilana Glazer, Joe Latrulio. Oh, there's my cat Quincy in the background. <laughs> Ten years on, we are still a very homemade show, my friends. I forget where I was. Margaret Cho, uh, Janine Garofalo, Andy Dick, Kamal Bell, Jason Biggs, Kevin Nealon, Thomas Lennon, Sam B, Kamal Nanjiani, Pete Holmes, Bowen Yang, Bobcat Goldthwait, Julio Torres, Joe Kim Booster, and those are just the ones that I remembered right before I recorded this. <laughs> it would be impossible to be complete in our little retrospective today. I highly recommend that you do explore the back catalog because every single one of the 461 episodes has an insight or a laugh or an emotional jolt or something that will stick with you and might just change your life. People write into us about that all the time. I should also say this, since we've been re-releasing classic Risk Singles episodes, every Thursday it's just one story from the early years, we get so many emails and messages on social media from people who are upset. Uh, people reminding us that you're not allowed to say such and such a word anymore, or people insisting that we take an episode down off of the internet because something expressed or the way it was expressed didn't seem kosher to them nowadays. So let me, let me tell you, we are very, very, very aware that times are changing and that there's a lot of, um, you know, things are fraught out there about what is insensitive or what is inappropriate. But we just need the fans to know that we're walking a tightrope every week here. We have been for 10 years. We are trying to balance between the spirit of the show, which is the idea that people should be able to speak here without censoring themselves, and trying also to be as compassionate and emotionally intelligent and sensitive about what goes out there as well. I mean, if there's one thing I can guarantee you, it's that if you listen to Risk regularly, there will come a day when you hear something here that doesn't sit so well with you. But if I was trying to guarantee otherwise, then the show just wouldn't be what it is. One of our most talked about stories in the history of the show is the one called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, and I hadn't listened to it since we put it out there. So while I was preparing for this show, I decided to finally listen to it again after eight years or whatever it is, and was stunned by how much of it would cause outrage if we re-released that one uh, today. I mean, you know, in 2011... I didn't know what non-binary meant. I mean, outside of uh, Eastern philosophy. <laughs> so uh, maybe no clips from that one on today's episode. But if you do go back and check it out, I already know what your shame on you, how dare you, Kevin Allison, emails to me will be about. Now, what else is the show that we haven't covered so much yet? I'll tell you, it is incredible, amazing, unbelievably creative, and nuanced audio editing. Ding, 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 
The sound design of our radio stories is one of our greatest pride and joys. Right now, our radio stories are edited by the tireless and never-endingly excellent Jeff Barr and John LaSala. But there's also those crazy sound collages, those interstitials that pop up in between stories. If you listen back to episodes like the one called Animal Wild or the one called Music, those entire episodes are tapestries of sound. Now, for our Patreon members, Jeff Barr created a 41-minute sound collage all blended together, which is the best of all the Risk sound collages of the past 10 years. And here, we're going to hear just a taste of it. Uh, These little collages that you're about to hear sewn together, they followed stories on the show about mothers helping, singing telegrams, and rudeness. So check this out. The messenger, and I have a telegram for you. An important message from someone you know. Well, okay, then. Tell me the message. Oh, no, 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 no. I cannot tell it to you, sir. I am supposed to sing it to you. On next Thursday, cousin Fred will come and pick Joe off the bed. We found your dog at Lovely Pup. Please stop by and pick it up. Just a little pop, pop, pop. We'll come and pick Joe up to say, Hey, wait, stop me, dog, be Fred. I'm next on your feet, Thursday, then it's time for a stop, he's flying. The dog, come, master, Joe, I'll pick him up. Go bed, 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 go bed,
pick on somebody my own size. What a dick. Sir, you're a real jerk. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. Granddad would slap you in the snot box talking like that. Whatever. Found a mess of people's heads, you know? She was just teasing us with her vulgar attitude. How are we supposed to respect you in the morning when you treat us like this, huh? Well, if you have to pick on someone, I just assumed it was me. Stop teasing me. Stop teasing me. Watch it. You're getting rude. Listen, you motherfucker. Don't you push me. Language, language. This is my house. What? Why do you find it so necessary to use vulgar words? Very goddamn funny. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's really very upset. You'll just have to excuse him. It's true that he has quite the temper and that he takes a little too much personal initiative. He hasn't been all right in the head from when he was a little boy. Shove it up your ass. I said, ha, ha. Will you shut the fuck up? You stupid morons, you idiot. You bumbling, stupid idiot. God, you're so stupid. Don't call me stupid, stupid. You fucking moron. You are a pitiful bitch. You are the jerk and everyone knows it. Come on, it was only a joke. It's not a joke anymore. To help with good Rockies revival. Oh, oh yeah, Penises and buttholes, penises and buttholes, penises and butts. Hello, kids. This is the risk. The show where people tell serious stories. Fine, Emmer, fight they dare to share. I'm Kevin Ellison. <laughs> Jesus God. Oh my goodness. What, you might ask, was that? That was how we started episode 320, the 20th episode of our third year, where Jeff Barr did all sorts of editing magic to get me to talk backwards. And then before that, a little ditty I once put on the show for no reason whatsoever called Penises and Buttholes, although I could also just call that song my favorite things. I thought of doing a montage of all the most insane episode hosting moments from the past 10 years. (laughs) Jesus God. But I thought instead of that, why don't we just play the greatest hit of all of the hosting moments you know it and you love it and don't forget to listen for actual sounds of me having orgasms with the holidays almost here you don't have time to go to the post office it will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream so use stamps.com instead You use your own computer 
for your letters and packages. WeUseStamps.com Why don't you use Stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus off for the digital scale. And free boosted. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. I took a risk and then I died. Now I'm dead. Locked inside a box in the dark And I thought I was smart But I'm not, but I'm not That's what happens when you risk That's what happens when you risk is all for this week's episode folks this is tennis behind me now with a song called 10 minutes 10 years um there will be there will be one more montage of funny and outrageous clips from the show at the very 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 end of the episode now i used to end every episode by listing our staff now our staff is so big (laughs) that I stopped doing that, but I think it's appropriate to do it this time. We are so, so, so grateful for the people who work with us and make this show possible. Our business director is J.C. Cassis. Our story coaches are Cindy Freeman, Brad Lawrence, Michelle Walson, David Crabb, and Amy Salloway. Our audio editors are Jeff Barr, John LaSala, and Marty Garcia. David Crabb produces and hosts our show in Los Angeles. Our webmaster is Ethan James. Our videographer is Matt Anderson. Our publicist is Chris Gersbeck. Our literary agent is Liz Parker. Our lawyer is Alana Crow. Our administrative assistant is Shelley Jordan. Our touring agents are Josh Lindgren and Uni Schur. Our faculty of teachers at our school, the Story Studio, are Cindy Freeman, Brad Lawrence, Don Fraser, David Crabb, Wes Hazard, Gail Thomas, Gigi Lee, Amy Salloway, Julia Whitehouse, Julia Rossi, and Michelle Walson. I also want to give the greatest thanks 
to all of our storytellers, all, what is it, 1,408 stories that have been shared on this show so far, and to you, we so very dearly value our listeners, our fans out there. We love you, and we are determined to keep it up for at least another 10 years. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Aching balls, my aching balls. What the fuck do you want? He just turned to some. What the fuck do you want? <laughs> and I lie down on the driveway and I go, Look at me, I'm Moby Dick. And I squeeze really hard. And this brilliant crystalline arc of water shoots, issues forth in a jet from my butthole. And I'm realizing that I'm that wasn't the, that wasn't the throw up that makes everything better. So I feel the dick meet on the diaper. I'm like, oh my God, I need a career change at that point. And then it's just, boom, the world's angriest vagina. I get on top of her and I put it in her. <laughs> she puts her hand on my chest and goes, you're in my ass. As a little girl, like little girls, like butts are gross. Like, that is where poop comes out of. That is what a butt is. But for a little boy, a butt is like, they see a butt and they're like, oh, there's this small crease, this space at the bottom that it seems like my nose would fit into perfectly. And I finally twist around and I look up at him and I said, hey, babe, could you not grab my fat while we're fucking? And he shoves my head back down to the pillow and grabs my belly again with the other hand and goes, shut up, I like it. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. just totally like came on the spot, like squirted all over the place. And I said, I'm about to be fucked by a lady with a strap on. And he said, oh, sweetheart, just be safe. And I said, well, of course I'll be safe. It's just a dildo. And he said, well, I guess I mean, don't break any bones. The mob guy leans over to Frank and he goes, hey, Frank, where's the unicycle? Frank goes, that's a unicycle. Guy goes, you trying to fuck me? And he goes, no, you asked for a unicycle, that's a unicycle. He goes, that half a broken bicycle's a unicycle? And Frank goes, yeah, yeah, it is. And he goes, that ain't a unicycle. A unicycle is that horse with the horn. <laughs> Frank goes, that ain't a unicycle. That's a unicorn. And the guy goes, Frank goes, that unicorn don't exist. He goes, well, it better fucking exist or I'm killing that goddamn clown right now. In the same week as that happening, my washing machine broke. And... Oh. Fuck you, this is my life. <laughs> and I came up with the phrase, y'all got hamboo? 
And for the 15 minute ride home, we were just saying it over and over and over. Y'all got hamboo? Y'all got hamboo? Y'all got hamboo? And straight out of her, this area shot like all the inner, I guess it was all on my new Banana Republic clothes in my shoes. It was freezing. It was freezing. So instantly, I, I like, like, man, fuck this, daddy. What the fuck is going on, man? Straight up. Straight up, daddy. What does one do when you're in what you perceive to be a life and death situation? Mom! Mommy! Help, Mom! Are you, are you doing all right? And he goes, you know what? To be honest, I don't remember getting in this car. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, I just kind of realized we were in a car and I was driving it. And I reached down like I'm picking a wedgie and I was wearing thigh highs, not full tights, so when I scoot my leotard, there's nothing between my crotch and the night. And I... <laughs> I scooted over, and I'm listening, I'm nodding, our eyes are entwined, and I pee. And it felt so good. I felt like I was serving it to Pocahontas, I'm serving it to this lady. And for two seconds, I'm feeling high on life, like, wow, I'm, I can do things. I don't care what I can't do, I can do this. Boo! Why are you still up there? You're a piece of shit! You're a piece of shit. A, a human being said that to me. Now, I did not... I did not win the crowd back to my side with my witty rejoinder, Sir, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear you were trying to hurt my feelings. Talks like that. I was most surprised that he had no shame because this was the smallest penis that I had ever seen in my entire life. It looked like a little pig dick. I, pig dick is all I can keep thinking. And if you're lucky enough to know someone where you don't even have to speak, you can just look at them and know exactly what they're talking about, well then laugh it up because that's as good as it fucking gets. I'm done. Clap. And I open the door, and laying on the bed is Mr. Murphy, with no clothes on, and also missing two-thirds of his skin. Uh, he was deceased, but like really deceased, like horrifically deceased, because at some point, his dogs ate part of him, which also killed his dogs, which were all dead around his bed, right? <laughs> Every alarm is going off in my brain. It is this total system shock. And I'm losing my mind like, is my dick on fire? Is it still gonna be there when I look down? Do you have any idea how many nerve endings are in your genitals? The answer is way too many to fuck piping hot fruit. So my body locks up and I'm just writhing in my sheets like, oh fuck, how bad is this? Is this Neosporin bad or is this emergency room bad? Do I have to call 911 and say, hi, I burned my dick, send help. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, I fucked an orange. And they're like, why was the orange hot? And I'm like, cause we were out of grapefruit. And of course I'm thinking, my dad is just the coolest dad ever. I mean, he's totally just having this 
amazing moment with this gorilla. <laughs> My dad's eyes are open wide. <laughs> the gorilla now closes his eyes, shaking his head, nodding, jumping, clapping. <laughs> People are gathered around. I'm just looking, just filled with pride and, and amazement at this scene that's unfolding before me. <laughs> And suddenly, the gorilla jumps back onto what I can only call a shelf, revealing his long, veiny gorilla erection, and then he ejaculates all over the glass. I said, Olga, get in the zone, man. Get in the fucking zone. You are the man. You are not your body. You are your mind. And I fucking do it. I said, I got it. As soon as I got it, and we got the rhythm going and shit, I go, oh, oh, hold on, let me get that chair. I go and grab a chair, I sit on it, I got Carlito sticking straight up, and he's huge, by the way. This girl is so afraid of me, because she's looking at my face like, wait, 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 this is not what I signed up for. Like, I was like, yo, you talk all that shit, you give it to me, right now. I want to feel your pussy. I want to feel your pussy on my fucking dick. So I don't know where Joyce went, but then she opens her bedroom door. She's totally naked. And she has a gorgeous body. And she says, I need a black plastic bag. I said, oh, oh I'll get you a black plastic bag. Went into the kitchen. I opened the pants and I pulled out a big black plastic bag. Then I went back to her naked body standing in the door and I said, why do you need the black plastic bag? She said, I vomited on the carpet. I pull up my pager. Male 37, feeling bored, cut off own penis and flushed down toilets. And he reacted in a way that I didn't expect. He starts pounding on the steering wheel and saying, Why? 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 Why do I do all the penis calls? But he's also pissing like a racehorse, so he can sense that he's pretty much waterboarding me, right? So he pulls back and he starts to piss all over the crown of my head and right into my eyes and then down my chest. It's a baptism, right? And I typed in, where did you go? And he didn't answer me. Instead, he said, what is your name? And I said, well, you first. And he said, if your name is Gretchen... What in the hell are you doing on this site? So, my face went numb again. And I knew at this point exactly what I was dealing with, and I had no more illusions. So I just answered, Well, Dad, I guess I'm doing the same thing here that you're doing, and uh, this is kind of weird. And he said, You need to sign off immediately. And I said... Excuse me, I think maybe I was here first. 
And she stood right up there to the front of everybody. He took a good dick out of this world. He took a good dick out of this world. He took a, he took a, he took, he, 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 he took a good dick out of this world. Rolled and went back and forth in front of the casket. I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave. No, I didn't, bitch. I'm lying. I wanted to see what the fuck was going to happen. Ding, ding.